And now let us open our Bibles to Leviticus chapter 15. We're continuing along in our series through the book of Leviticus. And we'll be looking at the whole of chapter 15 this morning. O congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, hear now God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean, and this is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever sits on anything on which the one with with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And if the one with the discharge spits on someone who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And any saddle on which the one with which the discharge rides shall be unclean. And whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Anyone whom the one with the discharge touches... Without having rinsed his hands in water, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. In an earthenware vessel, that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken, and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. And when the one with the discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes. And he shall bathe his body in fresh water and shall be clean. And on the eighth day he shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge. If a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed in water and with water and be unclean until the evening. If a man lies with a woman and has an emission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean, and whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, whether it is the bed or anything on which he sits. When he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man, if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days. And every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge shall she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. 
Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days. And after that, she shall be clean. And on the eighth day, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. This is the law for him who has a discharge and for him who has an omission of semen becoming unclean thereby. Also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity, that is for anyone male or female who has a discharge and for the man who lies with a woman, who is unclean. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. This morning we look at the uncleanness associated, both male and female, of bodily discharges. And it's with subjects like these that you really thank the Lord for choosing some of these types and symbols uh, that he has used to teach us. Uh, This topic doesn't make me uncomfortable or make me blush at all. Um, But having said that, uh, it is part of Holy Scripture. And it is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so we come to this chapter with just such a mentality in place. Now, before we look at the importance of these laws on bodily discharges, let me remind you of why Moses inserted these clean and unclean laws right here in the book of Leviticus. Of course, he did so because the Holy Spirit uh, led him to do so, uh, but they're placed right in this portion of the book of Leviticus for a reason. Now, if you will remember in chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu were struck dead, and fire came forth from the Lord and consumed them. Why did this happen? It happened because they defiled the tabernacle and profaned the holy worship of God. And so the deaths of Nadab and Abihu revealed that defiling the holy dwelling place of God would result in death. And so it was very important then that God reveal to Israel all the uncleannesses that would defile the people and thereby defile the holy tabernacle, the sanctuary of God. God is Holy And the place where he dwells must be holy. That is, it must be set apart from all that is common. And so in chapter 10, still looking at chapter 10, verse 10, just after the deaths of Nadab and Abihu, the Lord told Aaron, the high priest, that he is to teach the people to distinguish between the holy and the common 
and between the unclean and the clean. And those two distinctions were extremely important. With regard to the holy and the common distinction, we learned that the tabernacle was the holy realm. And it was to be distinguished from the common realm, which was everything outside of the tabernacle precincts. Now, the distinction between the unclean and the clean was related to the distinction between the holy and the common. Because nothing unclean should ever enter into that holy realm. That would defile the holy realm, the tabernacle, and death would result. And that's why verse 31 of our passage, there at the very end, towards the end of chapter 15, the passage we just read, it says, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in that uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. You see, this is why the clean and unclean laws are inserted at this portion of the book of Leviticus. Now, I want you to remember that uncleanness does not always come as a result of committing a particular sin. And so just because someone became unclean didn't necessarily mean that they had sinned. Michael Morales, in his book, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, writes, While in Leviticus 11 through 15, uncleanness is not flatly or immediately equated with particular sinful acts, it is nevertheless treated as being generally or ultimately the result of sin. Uncleanness represents the pollution of sin. Contact with a carcass results in uncleanness. Therefore, not because such contact is in itself a sin, but because death and mortality are the result of sin. End quote. And so, for example, as we saw in our chapter, when a man lies with a woman, as it says in verse 18, they become unclean until evening and must bathe themselves. Well, We know that sexual relations between a husband and a wife are a good thing created by God. Yet it made them unclean. Clearly it was not because it was a sinful act. And so why then did it make them unclean? Here's why. This is important to get for all of the discharges in this chapter. It made them unclean because it resulted in the loss of life fluids. That word translated discharge is probably more simply, more literally translated, flow. The flow of life fluids out of the body made someone less than whole. And being less than whole made you ritually or ceremonially unclean. It did not necessarily make you sinfully unclean. 
didn't have to necessarily commit a particular sin, but you were indeed ritually or ceremonially unclean. Please remember that God was using these clean and unclean laws as symbols to teach Israel. And that brings us to ask, what was he teaching them by these symbols? Well, he was teaching them that only those who were clean and full of life themselves could draw near to him at the tabernacle. Since he himself is perfect life and perfect wholeness. Those who became ceremonially unclean, symbolically, had the aura of death about them. Because, as Gordon Wyndham puts it, they manifest less than physical wholeness. That's what the symbolism was suggesting. Was it sinful in itself to have certain discharges of life fluids? No, not necessarily. The loss of life fluids in sexual relations, in menstruation, or in childbirth, as we learned back in chapter 12, were not sinful in themselves. But again, Michael Morales states, physical imperfections, disruptions, deformities, and maladies, though not sinful in themselves, nevertheless still reflect sin's damage and pollution of the earth and therefore required ritual cleansing, end quote. You see, God used these unclean laws as symbols, which all related in some way to death and to a lack of wholeness. To teach Israel that sin has brought about death and loss of life. All of these unclean laws were symbols that God used to demonstrate that sin has damaged and polluted creation and that it needs to be cleansed. And so God was showing them through these types and shadows that he had a cleansing project by which he would make all things right. That's what all the washings and sacrifices for these uncleannesses were demonstrated. We, we've covered already those sacrifices of the dove or the pigeon and alluded to those. You can go back and listen for all of the symbolism to them. But both people and things needed to be cleansed from their ceremonial uncleannesses. And depending on the severity of the discharge... Some required more or less of these washings or sacrifices. And some items even needed to be destroyed and discarded. The clay pots, for example, in our passage had to be destroyed and discarded. And they needed to be either washed or cleansed or destroyed and discarded lest they continue to spread their uncleanness to the people. And the people who had become ceremonially unclean needed to be cleansed and atoned for, or they could not approach the tabernacle where God dwelled. God used these ceremonies or rituals to foreshadow that he would cleanse 
all things. That he would cleanse his people, especially through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God would send his son into the world to cleanse his people from their sins. The animal sacrifices in this chapter and and throughout Leviticus could not in and of themselves cleanse the people of their sins. God used them as types and shadows of Christ, the true and perfect sacrifice whose blood alone cleanses us from all our impurities. Not the impurities of the unclean laws. Those were just symbols. But it cleanses us from all our sins and transgressions against God. Christ, my friends, is the only hope in this world to be saved from the eternal wrath of God against us for our sins. In light of this, there's really a very important aspect to these laws that the Lord was teaching Israel at that time. And that was the fact that the people's impurities defiled his tabernacle, his holy dwelling place. And that is why a person who was unclean could not approach God at the tabernacle. If they attempted to do so, they would be struck dead immediately. But furthermore, if the nation as a whole stopped keeping these laws and stopped offering right sacrifices, then eventually God would abandon that tabernacle where he dwelled in their midst. He would not remain in a defiled dwelling place. And later in the life of Israel, that is precisely what he did. The first few chapters of 1 Samuel tell us the story of God abandoning the tabernacle. Now at that time, the tabernacle resided in a little town called Shiloh. And we are told in the second chapter that the Lord had rejected Israel's evil priests, two particular evil priests, Because they had scorned the sacrifices that he graciously gave them to offer at the altar. And then in chapter 4 it tells us that as a result of these evil priests. That the glory presence of the Lord departed from the tabernacle that was in Shiloh. And departed Israel altogether. Now, his departure from them would only be temporary. He would eventually return to Israel. But he never actually returned to the tabernacle while it resided in Shiloh. As you can imagine, this was a rather significant event in the life of Israel. And it was to be a warning to them. To keep his laws and to offer right sacrifices and to cleanse themselves from their uncleannesses. In fact, that very event became a prophetic sign for a later generation of Israel. The prophet Jeremiah, later on in redemptive history, recounted this event in order to warn Israel to repent 
lest the glory of the Lord depart from the temple that was then in Jerusalem. Just as he had departed from the tabernacle earlier when it was in Shiloh. In Jeremiah chapter 7, the word of the Lord came to Israel. And beginning in verse 9, through the prophet Jeremiah, he said, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and then say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Go now, he tells them, to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord. And when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house... Referring to the temple in Jerusalem, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I have gone to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. You see, this was a warning to Israel to repent and to turn to him in faith and to keep his laws lest he abandon them, lest his glory. Presence depart from the temple where he dwelled in their midst. Now, if you know the history of Israel, then you know that they did not, after hearing those words, repent of their sin. And God's presence did, in fact, depart from the temple. The book of Ezekiel. And chapter 10 records the departure of the glory of the Lord from the temple in Jerusalem. Without the presence of the Lord as their refuge, as their strong tower, as their protection, the Babylonians then came in and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem just as the Lord had planned. You see, the departure of the glory presence of God in the book of Samuel foreshadowed the departure of God's glory from the temple in Jerusalem in later generations of Israel. But just as the Lord eventually returned to his people when his glory had departed from the tabernacle in Shiloh, so his glory would eventually return to his people after he departed from the temple In Jerusalem, his return to them is most emphatically told in the coming of the Son of God to this earth. Behold, Matthew 1.23 says, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God. With us. Beloved, in the person of Jesus Christ, the presence of God has returned to his people. In fact, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we are told that the Word became flesh and dwelt 
More literally, it says, and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, the only glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In the coming of the son, beloved, God's cleansing program was finally coming to fruition. The sacrifices and cleansing foreshadowed that work. But in the appearance of the Son of God, its fulfillment was actually beginning. And Jesus demonstrated this throughout his life. He demonstrated it in many of his miraculous signs. A woman with a continual flow of blood touched him and instantly she was healed and the blood, the flow of blood ceased. He healed lepers, even touching one of them. He healed those with unclean spirits, the Gospels tell us. You see, he was making these people whole again. In him was the fullness of life and he had the power to heal them from their illnesses and cleanse them from their uncleannesses. And these miracles were signs that he had come to make all things new. To bring about a new creation. The work that he performed began, beloved, by laying down his life as an atonement for our sins. By faith we are washed in his blood and cleansed from our sins sins. Paul tells us that if we are in Christ, then we are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. But he says this is true of us only with respect to the inner self, for our outer self is still wasting away. It wastes away as a result of the fall, as a consequence of sin. Nevertheless, God's cleansing program will continue and will come to completion at the return of Christ. Our bodies, our outer selves will be resurrected and glorified. We will be new creations in both body and soul. Inwardly and outwardly. Even more, the whole creation will be renewed and cleansed. Some of it will be destroyed, being dissolved by fire. But out of that cleansing fire will come a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. And that's what the camp of Israel was meant to be a shadow and a copy of. That's why certain items were to be washed or cleansed and other items broken and taken out of the camp because it was a symbol of the new heavens and the new earth, a symbol of a place where only righteousness dwells, where nothing unclean shall enter, as Revelation 21 says of the new heavens and new earth. Now, beloved, if the Lord has cleansed you 
from all your sins and made you a new creation already through faith, then what should mark your lives as you await the revealing of the new heavens and the new earth at the appearing of Jesus Christ? Well, it ought to be marked by holiness. It ought to be marked with holy living. Consider the distinctions between the holy and the common, and the clean and the unclean. You see, that which was unclean could not be made holy. But that which had been cleansed, that which was clean, could be made holy. If something was unclean, it needed cleansing, it needed healing. Think of the leper, for example. If in his leprosy he was unclean, but God had healed him, then he would undergo the cleansing rites and be made clean once again. And then, and only then, could one become holy. But that which was unclean could never be made holy. First, it must be made clean. It must be cleansed. And so, beloved, if by spirit-wrought faith you have been cleansed, then God is Continually, progressively sanctifying you, making you holy. Therefore, you should live lives that are holy. Our passage this morning demonstrates that the covenant people were devoted to their God in every aspect of their lives. Or at least they were to be devoted to him. In every aspect of their lives. When they entered into covenant with God, every aspect of their lives was then committed to God. There was no thought in their minds that certain aspects of their lives were religious and others were secular. Their whole lives were devoted to the Lord. Think about these clean and unclean laws that we have seen over the past number of weeks. They were devoted to the Lord in what they ate. They were devoted to the Lord in what they touched. They were devoted to the Lord in their hygiene. Even devoted to the Lord in their sexual relations. You see, in their covenant relationship with the Lord, they were devoted to Him in every respect. Well, the clean and unclean laws, beloved, have now been fulfilled in Christ. And are now abrogated. But may the principle of being devoted to God in all we do continue to define our lives today. And when we fall short of God's glory and sin, may we be those who look to our sacrifice, Jesus Christ, with faith and repentance. To him be all praise and glory both now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious God, we do thank you for the cleansing program ultimately wrought in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we thank you that he, too, is our covenant Lord. We pray that we would be mindful of the commandments with which he has given us. Not necessarily these types and shadows, for they have all been fulfilled, but Lord... You tell us 
that if we love you, we will keep your commandments. And so may we be mindful of your holy law. May we be mindful to love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, we pray that we would be able to do these things through the power of your Spirit. For left to ourselves, we are hopeless, but must depend upon you for all things. Christ is the vine, and we are the branches. And so we cling to and depend upon Christ, the vine. Through him, we can do all things. And so we pray uh, by the power of his spirit dwelling in us that we would live lives unto your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.